Hi, everybody. I uh, hope you're all doing fine. Uh, continuing the tradition of having unbelievable guests. Today, I'm joined by the actor from Pretty in Pink, Andy McCarthy himself. Wait a second. I think I've got the wrong Andrew McCarthy. This is not the right Andrew McCarthy. This is the Andrew McCarthy who led the federal um, prosecution of Sheikh uh, Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh for the, in the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. He's also participated in the uh, prosecutions in the Tanzania and Kenya bombings, uh, in the, I think in the late 90s. He served as Rudy Giuliani's attorney, uh, is, a, is currently a fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Let me just mention some of his books before I turn the, uh, the mic to him. Some of his books include Willful Blindness, Memoir of the Jihad, How Obama Embraces Islam's Sharia Agenda, The Grand Jihad, How Islam and the Left Sabotage America, How the Obama Administration Has polit Politicized Justice, Spring Fever, The Illusion of Islamic Democracy, Faithful Execution, Building the Political Case for Obama's impe Impeachment, and his latest book, Islam and Free Speech. Great to have you on, sir. Great to be here. God, I, I don't know if it's a, in the world I come from, being an unbelievable guest is probably not helpful, but <laughs> I'll do my best. You, you should have warned me, though, because I have a, I have a Molly Ringwald cutout <laughs> and I have a blind shake cutout, which I use interchangeably depending on which way the interviews. Well, so, so. some would argue that that movie was itself a crime against humanity. So it, dep <laughs> so it depends. You know, they could both be criminals. Uh, I first uh, became aware of you when I read uh, one of your books, I think The Grand Jihad, and uh, sort of followed your career. Uh, I thought it would be great to have you on because, I mean, yesterday was Memorial Day where, you know, we, we sort of celebrate all sorts of heroes that have defended our free societies. But, of course, there are other heroes that defend our free societies. Intellectuals do it. Lawyers who put bad guys away do it. And so in, in, in that spirit, uh, we certainly have to honor guys like you that are at the forefront of putting away these guys. Maybe we could start by talking about your involvement in the original 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, you know, it, it was an interesting time because of a, a variety of reasons. For, for one thing, when the bombing first happened, we didn't really know what we were dealing with as a country. And that was part of the reason that they came to me. We were kind of uh, playing catch-up in the sense of having to deal with a catastrophic attack although the, the, the loss of life was minimal, which in one sense you're thankful for, but in, a, in another way um, it minimized, I think, the, uh, the immediacy and urgency of dealing with the threat. Um, but what for us as a practical matter it meant was that we were trying to uh, master and marshal what little intelligence product we had in terms of uh, investigating the threat because even as they bombed the World Trade Center, they immediately began a plot to bomb New York City landmarks. So we were both trying to prove something that had happened and prevent something that was about to happen. We didn't really have a template for how you deal with international terrorism. Our criminal penal code was completely ill-equipped to deal with it. Uh, and we hadn't had enough of it, thankfully, uh, that we, we really had a, a model for how you do that kind of case 
or even if it was a case as opposed to uh, something more profound and, and national security oriented. So all those things were going on at once. And the other interesting part of it, and this is one I don't think we've recovered from to this day, is that there was an immediate effort by the government to project that the atrocity had nothing to do with Islam and to marginalize the people who had committed it as basically ne'er-do-wells uh, of, of limited scope uh, who happened to be Muslim but weren't representative of any uh, thread, legitimate thread of Muslim thought. And it seems to me that uh, we ended up, I had to go to school on it. I didn't know whether what we were saying is true or wasn't true. I wanted to believe it was true. Um, it became pretty clear to me that it wasn't true, uh, which was something I had to come around to reluctantly because I couldn't do my job unless I uh, kind of honestly appraised what we were dealing with. You know, you can do uh, propaganda and political correctness in the press room, but in the courtroom where your evidence is going to be subjected to searing cross-examination and a lot of examination, um, you're not really able to pull a politically correct fantasy version of the facts. It, you have to kind of lay it out there. And the more we did that, the more it became clear that there was a linear nexus between commands to violence in the doctrine, mediating figures like the blind sheikh, um, who were authoritative because of their renowned mastery of the doctrine and the fact that they could inspire these young Muslim men, and then finally these attacks on American interests. So whatever they were saying in the press room, whether it was at the White House or the Justice Department in Washington, in the four corners of the courtroom, we got to prove what actually happened and why. So all these things um, were coming together at once. And I'm proud to say, I think... Um, we arrived at an accurate version of what the truth was and what the policy should be. I'm sad to say that we weren't persuasive enough to affect the, um, the government's official version of things that was put out to the press and the public, and that unfortunately we've been fighting that battle in the ensuing quarter century or so. So let me actually, I mean, we're jumping ahead, but I had a little section here where I wanted to read you some quotes since you're talking about sort of the propaganda and the apologetics and, uh, you know, uh, the, the political correctness. Uh, here are some quotes. Now, this is uh, a few years later. Uh, I think you can, you can tell us who each of those quotes are. Let's see. Let's see if you can guess. So the face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. Who said that and when? Well, it could have been uh, Janet Reno. It could have been President Clinton. Higher, higher. Uh, President George, Clinton, perhaps. George Bush, immediately after September 11th, when he went to uh, some, uh, I think it was at a, at a mosque. Yeah, then, God, God actually, it, it, was at, it was at a mosque in Washington, I think exactly. within about 24 hours. But the interesting thing is you could go back eight years earlier and see the public things that were said by uh, Attorney General Reno President Clinton and other higher up 
people in the Clinton administration, and they would almost mirror word for word what Bush said post 9-11. So it, it means that we made no progress in that eight years right. explaining to people what the threat was. And it's only gotten worse. So let's, let's do a few more. Uh, the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. I think we know who that is, yes? Yes, that would be President Obama. <laughs> uh, addressing the United Nations. I mean, you would like to think that the President of the United States would say exactly the opposite of those words. I mean, you couldn't say something more perfectly incorrect with our values than to make that statement. Yep. Uh, thirdly, Hillary Clinton put out this, this tweet, uh, I think a few months ago. Let's be clear. Islam is not our adversary. Muslims are peaceful and tolerant people and have nothing whatsoever to do with terrorism. Uh, then there are two other things I want to mention to you. You may know them or not, but certainly I'll put some uh, clip to show this exchange between Representative Dan Lundgren questioning Paul Stockton, the Assistant Defense Secretary of Homeland Security. I remember this. Oh, you do remember this? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then Representative Lamar Smith questioning Attorney General Eric Holder. Holder. It, it's, it really feels as though it's a Saturday Night Live satire. <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm, I'm, being, I'm, I'm, not, I'm yes. not engaging in hyperbole. It just seems astonishing that that exchange is happening where you have a, a representative you know, of Congress trying to simply, I mean, it, it, it's a very, very small admission that he's trying to get these gentlemen to agree to, right? Do you think that Islam had anything to do with these things? And they equivocated and they hid and they hit the ball. and they. So from your perspective as somebody who was a federal prosecutor, what explains this? Is it that they're just trying to not alienate the greater Muslim world? Is it that they're truly this del delusional? Is it that they're complicit? What, what explains this, this lunacy? Well, I think obviously it's that they're trying to help me sell books. <laughs> Because I, I actually named my uh, first book, which was a memoir about my time dealing with this threat as it first was presented to us in the early 90s, at least domestically. Uh, I called it Willful Blindness, which was, uh, in a way, a, uh, a play on <coughs> the, uh, the fact that my infamously defendant was both willful and blind, and at the same time, our... Uh, our way of dealing with what we were confronted by uh, was willfully blind in the sense that we wanted to appear to be effective in combating it, but at the same time, uh, we consciously avoided understanding why it was happening. And there was such a commitment to this kind of conscious avoidance that over the years, you can't even parody it, as you point out, because if you tried to write a funny routine about people who don't want to know and have their head in the sand, you couldn't conceivably come up with something that was more riveting and mulishly wrong than what we've actually done. Um, the question why it happens is a really interesting one, and it's one I've given a lot of thought to over the years. Um, and I think, you know, as in most complicated things, there's not one answer to it. So let, let's talk first about the, um, the benign interpretation. I think that there are a number of people of a progressive bent of mind 
about international affairs, and note I said progressive, I'm not saying Democrat or Republican, because I think this is common on both sides, who, to give them the benefit of the doubt, um, they are well-meaningly wrong about what we're dealing with. They sincerely believe uh, a couple of things that are absurd. Uh, Number one, they think that if we acknowledge the nexus between Islamic doctrine and Islamic terrorism, that that somehow necessarily means that we are at war with each of the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, which to me is silly, but that is a, an ingrained proposition in their mind. I, I think largely because of the human nature uh, rationale that um, if you can convince yourself of a reason not to take action and not to acknowledge ugly things, you'll, you'll come up with reasons to do that. I, I call that the ostrich brigade, by the way. Yes, no, and that's a perfect uh, description of it. I, I think also because they're progressives and they, they want to believe an ideal instead of grappling with whether reality is, is tending in the direction of the ideal, they are stuck in this idea that if you take um, authoritarian Islamic cultures and you put them in the position of uh, analogous to representative government, and you treat them as if they were regular actors, they will evolve into regular actors. Um, at least that's, the, that's the, the floor plan as they, as they draw it up, right? I mean, the reality of the situation is precisely the opposite. You know, the more power you give these kinds of... Uh, authoritarian elements, the more authoritarian they become. They don't tend toward uh, democratic, regular political actors as we see it in the West. Uh, They just agglomerate more power. That's why I thought, uh, for example, that Erdogan is the pinnacle example of how wrong the West is about Islam, because we assiduously wanted to see him as a democratic reformer who was going to achieve the dream of showing that um, Sharia and Western democracy were seamlessly compatible. And he used the mechanisms of Western democracy uh, to actually crush his, uh, his opposition and, and accumulate power. So he's kind of the perfect example of why they're wrong. Um, but that's the, that's the well-meaning side of the government. Then you have the cynical side of the government, which may be more common. And that is, if you deny that Islam has anything to do with terrorism, most people sensibly understand that something has to cause it. And their strategy is to fill that box, the something, with whatever it is they happen to be against that week. Climate so, change. It's climate yeah, change. Climate change causes it. Gitmo causes it. Israel causes uh, it. Beard bullying caused the San Bernardino. <laughs> but I'm, right. I'm being serious, by the way. That's, that's, that's literally true. Yeah. Right. But, that, but it becomes a kind of a, a cynical rhetorical tool. Rather than trying to grapple with real causes, you use it as a political way to uh, combat your adversaries. So I think what we have in government is both. We have the well-meaning but wrong crowd and we have the cynical crowd, and in this instance, they've, they've uh, so entrenched themselves that after 25 years, we're about, maybe now we're making more progress than we ever did before, um, 
And I, I hate to say some of that may be attributable to Trump kind of not necessarily being educated or right on this stuff, but kind of breaking out of the artificial parameters we put around this debate. So, I mean, when you mentioned the word progressive, you were careful to say, look, this that word can apply to both aisles of the political uh, you know, spectrum. Right. But we could say, though, that generally, as a rule, <clears throat> the left is more enamored with all things Islamic than, than the right. What, what is it? There's a, there's a book, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, by Jamie Glazoff called United in Hate, I think. Yes. Where, where he talks about sort of the symbiosis, the love affair between uh, the left and Islam. What, from your perspective, it, well, first, is that true? Do you see that the left is more enamored with Islam? And if so, why? What is driving this, this love affair? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, the subtitle of, you were kind enough to mention my, my book, uh, The Grand Jihad. Uh, and the subtitle of that book was How Islam and the West Sabotage America. And I, would, I think I was getting at uh, the same thing that Jamie gets at and that Jamie's mentor and someone I have great reverence for, David Horowitz, has gotten to. So you mean uh, he's not a fascist, neo-Nazi, Dr. Mengele character? Believe it or not. Uh, but but I, I do think that um, we've tried to grapple with what the affinity is um, between Islamists and leftists. And, you know, I was fascinated when my, um, when my book came out, uh, The Grand Jihad, uh, which I think was uh, around 2010, uh, because I expected to be grilled on why, the very question that you've just asked me, which to me is the essential question, why is there such affinity between what at least ostensibly seem like the, the, they have very differing views on important uh, subjects, these two camps? Um, I, I expected to be asked the why question, and instead I was repeatedly not just asked but attacked with the weather question, you know, denial that it actually happens. So, you know, here you have this situation, unbelievably, where there's constant uh, collaboration between, in particular, the Muslim Brotherhood-connected Islamist organizations in the United States and the Democratic Party. To, the, to any objective person, it would be undeniable. I'm not talking about whether they're right or wrong, just simply whether they collaborate. And if you look at what's happening in Guantanamo Bay, you see a line of what I call the lawyer left queued up from Guantanamo Bay to Wall Street, um, looking to volunteer their services to America's enemies in the middle of a war. So to a commonsensical person, there would be no point in asking, do the left and Islamist collaborate? Because they collaborate every day. It's happening in front of your eyes. And yet they even denied that it was happening, never, never mind why it happens. Um, I think the why it happens is a, an interesting reflection of the fact of what we were talking about at the, at the beginning of our conversation, which is this willful blindness to Islamic doctrine. So people, especially progressives, political progressives in the United States, and especially Democrats, who want to deny that there's any sort of um, collaboration, at least when it's convenient for them to deny it, 
point to a few big hot button issues like abortion, homosexuality, women's rights, and they say uh, from looking at that, that it's perfectly obvious that these two sides could never be uh, reliable allies and that anybody who says they are uh, is simply a right wing lunatic who's looking to attack Democrats and Islamists, etc. Um, and I think that if we had gone to school and just learned a few basic tenets of uh, Islamist or Islamic supremacist ideology beginning in the early 1990s, by now everybody would know that uh, Islamist ideology is corporatist, uh, it's borderline socialist in a lot of ways, and it, it, particularly in terms of uh, uh, its economics and its um, central planning, its reliance on big government services. Um, and I think the most important thing is both of these philosophies um, are authoritarian, in, in really totalitarian in, in the sense that they want to run everything with a big emphasis on central planning. And secondly, historically, they have always collaborated with whatever ally was available to collaborate if they had a common enemy. Right. So if you look at Egypt, for example, um, the Nasserites and the Islamists collaborated against the British-backed regime until they knocked that off. And then what happens? They, they turned on each other. If you look in Iran, the Khomeinists and the communists in Iran worked together to topple the Shah. Then when the Shah was gone, they turned on each other viciously. So historically, these sides, because I think they're both looking to achieve the same thing, which is a, a very powerful, centralized, central plan, totalitarian sort of government that wants to manage every aspect of your life, they have, uh, that, that gives them more commonality than these few hot button issues where they, where they part company, um, give them differences that are important. Because what's overarchingly is important, or overarchingly important, is whether they have a common enemy. And in our Western freedom culture, and especially individual liberty culture, they have that common enemy. So they not only work together because they can, because of their agreement about the big things, um, they work together because they have to. I was going to say, when you mentioned uh, individual rights, that's, I think, one of the key issues. They're both driven, in, in a sense, by collectivism and identity politics, right? It's, it's no surprise that much of the social justice warriors and the ones who have the, you know, the oppression Olympics and the victimology poker and so on are people from the left, right? Because you as an individual don't carry any individual worth. You are part of a group, right? right. I, I am a black, lesbian, trans, uh, quadriplegic. I am a whatever person. I, you know, I, I read that about you before we, before we had this conversation because I wanted to know what I was dealing with. So, <laughs> Well, I always, I always joke that uh, I'm a nightmare for all those folks because uh, I score very, very highly on the oppression uh, <laughs> poker game and so whenever somebody come, tries to come after me I just simply f switch you know flip the script on them and then just use that and they literally run away because they're simply ill-equipped right so I say wait a minute you're attacking somebody from an Arabic country who's Jewish who's a brown man who's overweight who escaped execution 
poof, they disappear, yes. right? right? So it's not about individuals. And it's same thing with Islam, right? Islam is about the ummah. It's the whole group. It's everybody. It's one sort of colony, right? There mm-hmm. is a, the individual is irrelevant. And so because of that, because they are united in their hate to, again, borrow Jamie's uh, excellent title against the West, because they believe that we could... Uh, man is created tabula rasa. You're born with this empty mind and then we can reshape you in the way that we want. So because of all of those sort of, if you like, epistemological commonalities, they could have a marriage of convenience. And then they each, of course, think, well, once we get rid of big bad USA, maybe big bad Jews and so on, then we could turn on each other. And the bad news for my leftist friends is if in that battle, uh, the ones who fight as queers for Palestine will lose against Islam. But apparently they're not aware of that news. Yeah, I, I think all that's right. The, the thing that they have going for them, though, is the forces that are trying to evolve them, um, which is mainly a fantasy. And, and I, I, let me preface this by saying this is why I'm happy that I actually, my background is not in journalism. It's as a trial lawyer where you have to go in and prove facts and try to establish why things really happen. So what what the people in Washington who are the policymakers want to do is establish democratic culture, and they think that ultimately this will stamp out the authoritarian forces, right? Um, and as a result, they can't help but project their own values and their own principles on people who have a completely different mindset. So in the part of the world that we're talking about, and you're much more familiar with this than I am, but the, the fact of the matter is these concepts that we're trying to project on them as if everybody saw the world the way that we do are foreign. You know, the very idea of representative government. The idea that a person is a citizen rather than a subject is something that's, that's totally foreign to this culture. And what we should have understood beginning in the early 1990s, especially be, before we started these grand enterprises to try to democratize them, uh, is that in a Sharia culture, the test for the ruler is not whether he's quote-unquote responsive to his constituents – the test of the ruler is, does he have a fidelity to Sharia as understood in that culture? And if he does, then their duty is to obey, not to tell them that they want the, you know, they want the potholes fixed and you know, whatever else in re- representative democracy um, the representative is supposed to do that's responsive to the needs of the constituents. His job is to rule in accordance with Sharia and their job is to obey like so many cogs in the wheel. And I, I think to this day, we haven't gotten it through our thick heads. Uh, number one, that the model that we're trying to force on them is one that doesn't fit because its basic assumptions are wrong. And number two, in our arrogance, um, we seem to think that they just don't understand how representative democracy works, when in, in point of fact, the thing is they have a different system and a different civilization, and it's not that they don't get the West, they just think their system is better. 
Uh, and and we just can't seem to register that. Right. Now, you mentioned sh- Sharia, so maybe that's actually a good uh, segue into that segment. Uh, it, it drives me crazy, and it probably drives you more crazy because you are a lawyer and former federal prosecutor who's well aware of the American Constitution. When I hear some clown uh, get on CNN or some other show, typically some ostrich show, where he says, and I'm thinking here of Imam Rauf, the ground zero mosque guy, but there's, there have been many others, that says, oh, Sharia law, I mean, it is perfectly compatible. As a matter of fact, much of our American constitution comes from principles from Sharia law. And when I hear something like this, I mean, it's difficult to imagine first a statement that is more perfectly incorrect, since almost you couldn't have imagined creating a codified set of laws that is more antithetical to sort of American liberties than Sharia law. So how is it, well, first, I'd like you to comment on what I just said, but then secondly, when the people on CNN and and the rest of the intelligentsia let such statements go by, is it that they're just ignorant and they think, well, here's a guy who's an imam, so he must be telling the truth, or are they... Uh, complicit in the grand lie? What's going on? So let's take it two two parts. Well, I'd I'd rather say that uh, even again that there's no there's not one explanation for why the phenomenon you've described happens. Uh, I, I think that a lot of these people are where I was in 1993. They simply want to believe the benign interpretation because the other one is is just too horrible for them to wrap their brains around. Um, and, and I think that, I, I mean, I've tried to do this over the years, but I think as, as a, a broader movement, uh, the people who are anti-Sharia in the United States have not been good at trying to explain why uh, Islamic culture would adopt Sharia, what would be attractive to them uh, in it, and um, try to uh, uh, contrapose our system in a way that isn't necessarily insulting to theirs, but rather um, explains that there's simply differences in, in orientation. And to be more concrete about that, let's take it from the perspective of a devout believing Muslim. And you always have to preface this by saying that you know there's, there's variegated, interpretations of Islam, they're internally contradictory, who knows if there actually is a true Islam. But let's, stipulating that, let's just take a mainstream devout Muslim. Um, The mainstream devout Muslim believes, because this is a core tenet of the faith, that Sharia is Allah's gift to mankind, which lays out the framework for living a perfect dignified human life. So if you believe that, then to, to assess somebody who's been informed about Sharia and says, no, I don't think I want to do that. I want to go my own way is a supreme offense. I mean, basically the way their, their culture works and their belief system works, once you've been, once you've been informed that Allah has given this great gift to mankind, how dare you, a human being, depart from it? So that's their orientation. And if you understand that that's where they're coming from, um, you kind of understand why they 
literally submit to this framework, which doesn't uh, divide uh, civic life from religious life and, and, and you know, all the other uh, aspects of it that are, that are polar opposite to ours, the uh, discrimination, the lack of individual rights, uh, etc. Well, let me, now, can I, sorry, let me yeah, check before you, before you go on. Uh, and I've mentioned this on previous shows. Uh, one of a key tenets in, uh, in Sharia law is to determine uh, punishments or the severity of the crime as a function of the identity of the perpetrator and the victim, right? So, I mean, if you're right. a Muslim man who kills a Jewish woman, that's very different than if it's a Jewish woman who kills a Muslim man. So, so just I just have to stop right there. There is nothing that could be more antithetical to lady justice being blind in the context of American law than that. That's it, period. It's done, right? Yep. No, that's, that's so true because if you look just – my experiences in, in federal court almost 20 years as a prosecutor, right – the way that we do punishment is first and foremost dictated by the statute that you have violated. And the statute is only constitutional if it, if it applies to everyone equally. And then once you establish somebody's guilt of that behavior, then individual char characteristics come into play, but only for two reasons. One is um, if somebody is a multiple offender or has committed the offense for some particularly noxious motivation, the sentence can be increased. And at the same token, uh, if one has uh, you know, particular uh, hardships that you've had uh, in life, uh, they can be mitigating factors. But everything is driven by the offense behavior, not the status of the offender and, and, and the status of the victim. What, you, what you're explaining is it actually works almost exactly the opposite in a lot of the way Sharia law works out as a, as a criminal matter, those uh, hudud uh, penalties in, in, in particular. Um, to me, the other thing that's, that's worth stressing is that we're so different in our foundational premises. So we've just discussed the Sharia society in which the, the foundational premise is Allah has gifted mankind with this system of governance that you are obliged to follow. And in our system, the fundamental assumption is that the people have a right to chart their own destiny irrespective of any pre-existing code, whether it's Sharia or anything else. And there's no restrictions on making law for ourselves that is contradictory to any pre-existing system like Sharia, whereas uh, in a Sharia culture, you can't make law that contradicts the, uh, the foundational or, or, or the well-established consensus understanding of Sharia. So we're dealing with not only two different systems, but two systems that are different in their basic assumptions. So now there, there are, as you, I think you alluded to earlier in our chat, that there are various efforts to introduce uh, legislation that renders, uh, you know, Sharia to be, uh, you know, uh, illegal in various states. 
And now I think the guys who are sort of proponents of that movement have sort of smartened up by no longer sort of couching it in the language of only targeting Islam, but rather foreign laws in, in, in right? They've, they've sort of changed the language so that it wouldn't appear as though it's really Sharia that they're trying to target. Right. Do, do you have a sense of where that grand project is in terms of its spread across the 50 states? Is it is it working? Is it not working? If so, yes. If Why and why not? Uh Probably my friend David Yarashalmi, who's right. who's uh, one of the the real thinkers behind this, would would be a better person to ask about the pace of it. My sense is that it's it's happening gradually, um, but it's slow. And I, I think that David hit on something that was uh, extraordinarily important, um, not just strategically or tactically, um, in terms of the battle to to keep our to keep sharia authoritarianism out of our uh, legal system but also strategically the broad problem is not sharia the broad problem is international law so this is one of these tac- these strategic switches which is not only um, it, it happens to be the right thing tactically to do in this in this uh, skirmish with sharia but the thing that most threatens the american legal system and the American constitutional system is not Sharia. It's international law of which Sharia is a subset. And to be be more concrete about that, think about what happened with Obama's Iran deal. Um, Unbelievably to me, he got assistance from the Republican-controlled Senate, particularly uh, Senator Corker, but also Republican leadership that turned the Constitution's treaty provision on its head so that under the treaty provision, the framers wanted, the framers were skeptical of international agreements and they thought, uh, and I, I, I think this couldn't be more right, that international entanglements ought to be something that's, that are done on an ad hoc basis um, to confront particular problems. And then when the problem is over, the, the arrangement should be undone until the next time you need some kind of ad hoc arrangements. They were very skeptical of these you know, long-term uh, deals, uh, and they were particularly skeptical of anything that would move uh, sovereignty and decision-making away from the American people and toward uh, foreign powers. So for that reason... They made treaties difficult to ratify. So for the president, what happens under the Constitution is the president signs a deal, and then he has to persuade two-thirds of the Senate of the rightness of the deal in order to get it ratified. And what they did with the Iran deal was enact legislation, which I continue to believe was unconstitutional, that changed this formula so that now what President Obama needed was one-third approval of the Senate in order to get his treaty, um, and this was the, cl- the clever lawyerly way they did it, not to get his treaty accepted, but to get it not rejected. Uh, and then once he, once he got by that barrier, the thing he instantly did was run to the Security Council to get a resolution endorsing the deal. So now you have the American people who object to this saying it's unconstitutional and it's legally not enforceable. And the Obama administration saying 
if you try to do anything to undo it, that will now be a violation of international law because we have this Security Council resolution. And in the meantime, he doesn't need to be right about that. All he needs is the next seven to eight months to completely change the facts on the ground so that even if when the next president comes in, the next president says, well, this is legally unenforceable. It wasn't ratified as a, as a treaty. Uh, I'm not going to enforce it. The Iranians are going to say, well, we've already pocketed the $150 billion, and we've already got the, you know, the Russians supplying us with this new rocket technology. Uh, and we've already gotten basically 85 to 90 percent uh, of the benefits of this. And now we even have the Obama administration doing the very thing they promised Congress they wouldn't do, which, was br- which is bringing Iran into the American financial system, which they promised not to do. So, so that's, uh, you know, that, what, what I'm saying is David is right um, and the project is right. It shouldn't be just about Sharia. It should be about international law. Got it. Now, uh, moving to another international body, since we're talking about international law, uh, the United Nations, the biggest voting bloc in the United Nations, as you well know, is the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. And they have been assiduous, dogged, relentless in trying to criminalize uh, blasphemy of all religions. But of course, they don't mean that they care about whether somebody blasphemes Seventh-day Adventists. They only care about one religion. Shh, we won't say which religion it is. Right. Uh, and, and, and they've been trying in different ways and you know ratifying it, changing a couple of words. I think they've been doing this since maybe 1991. There was the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights, which is Sharia-based. Uh, and then, of course, a few years ago when uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, Secretary of State, she seemed to be very open to the idea uh, of what they were trying to push. So tell us your views on that. And as a lawyer, is this something that could ever pass? Is this something that I, as a professor in Canada, or if I were to move to the United States, should ever worry that I might be having a conversation with Andy McCarthy and then somebody from the OIC might, might levy an accusation against me that I've blasphemed Islam? I, I think you need to be profoundly worried because Mrs. Clinton didn't just think this was a good idea. Uh, she spearheaded the Obama administration's collaboration with the OIC to uh, get the United, United Nations to adopt this uh, Resolution 1618, which attempts to codify exactly what you're describing. So it imposes on all member states the obligation to use their legal systems to prohibit speech, which, among other things, um, could, uh, could incite hostility to Islam which means that on a, on a certain broad interpretation, and this would be, by the way, the interpretation, right? You and I could not have this conversation. It's unbelievable. Now, yes. Now, neither one of us have said the, the slightest thing insulting about Islam. In fact, I think we've gone out of our way to try to understand. Well, we're, we're trying to, to diagnose what the differences are and try to understand why there are those differences. Um, and yet... This conversation would not be legal uh, under that resolution um, because truth is not a defense. It's, it's, it basically reverses libel law. Um, so if, for example, I say, well, but this is, it's obviously true that there are commands to 
jihadist violence in the Quran, which people like the blind sheikh exploit in order to get uh, you know people like the, his cell to to bomb the World Trade Center. Because let me open up to Shura nine twenty nine, and I start reading to you what these commands to violence are. If I went into court and and, and they tried to go after me on this, and I said, "But it's true. Look at look at Shura nine twenty nine. What they would say is that it's irrelevant that that what I said was true because the crime is incitement. And if I use the truth to incite to incite bad people to do bad things, the the one who's wrong, which is totally contrary to every Western and American First Amendment principle, the one who's wrong is the one who is accurately reporting the truth, and the ones who are right are the ones who are irrationally reacting to the truth with, with violence and recrimination and, and condemnation. And that's where we are, and that is exactly where we go if Hillary Clinton is elected president. It, now, it should be totally unconstitutional, what they've tried to do, if, if they ever tried to do anything. In, in Canada, I, I think with the Trudeau administration, you've, you've got a big problem. Oh, yes. here, here, I should have the First Amendment as my defense. But this is why we always say elections matter and the courts matter. The court right now is basically a, a four-block, politically-oriented, progressive slice of the court. And four other judges, um, a, a couple of whom are reliably conservative, uh, a couple of whom walk on the wild side occasionally, depending on, on the case. Uh, but would probably be reliably conservative on a First Amendment issue of this epic importance. That means we're one vote, one vote away from losing the First Amendment. And it matters deeply who gets to pick that next justice. I was going to say, and next I'm going to ask you to, to speculate about Hillary, why Hillary Clinton did what she did. But uh, the example that you gave regarding you going in front of a court and saying, but what I said is true which you use as a hypothetical example, has already happened, by the way. Are you, can you guess where it has happened? Are you well, I, know, I know in Italy uh, it, it's happened. There have been... Uh, True. But right. the, 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 the most famous case is actually a Dutch parliamentarian who could stand to become the Dutch prime minister, Geert, Geert, Wilder, Geert yeah, Wilders, Geert, was, was taken to court. And when he went to court, he, I mean, he exactly, almost verbatim, said what you gave as a hypothetical example. But in his case, it wasn't hypothetical. It was all too real. He said... Can I, can, can I tell you something please. funny about that? Um, when, when that happened to Geert, I actually wrote about this at the time. Because the point I made was that in order to convict the blind sheikh, which I have all these shiny awards for at home, including... Uh, the highest award that the Justice Department gives out, uh, the Attorney General's Award for, uh, you know, extraordinary, I don't know if that's a superlative enough word for it, actually, but <laughs> Congratulations. It's, it's the highest, the highest award they give in the Justice Department. Now, what did I get the award for? I got the award for explaining to a jury that there are literal commands to violence in the Quran, that people like the blind sheikh mediate them because of their renowned mastery of the doctrine that blind sheikh is a doctor of islamic jurisprudence graduated but, from, but he's not a real muslim he's not a real muslim yeah so yeah yeah right, right right janet reno is the one who knows yes. his, and like, ben affleck 
Yeah. <laughs> but so the blind sheikh takes these commands to violence. Um, he mediates them to these young, impressionable Muslim men, and they go out and blow stuff up and kill people, right? For that, they gave me an award. For that, they're prosecuting Gerd Wilders for hate speech. And here we are, 25 years later, dealing with the same threat, and we've gone so backwards in our willful blindness, our mulish refusal to understand what we're dealing with, that we've actually gone from a situation where I would be an honored, um, rewarded prosecutor for doing great service to national security to today, if I tried to do the same thing, maybe if I wasn't in a courtroom, just in a conversation like this, I would be actually endangering myself in terms of legal action. And if it wasn't just a, American legal action, um, you know, maybe they don't want me to travel internationally because I'm a hater. Well, I had, by the way, and I want to come back to why Clinton is doing what she's doing. I had, I don't know if you're familiar with him, I had Robert Spencer on oh, recently. Of course. Yes. And uh, he was denied entry to Britain. Uh, I mean, exactly what you just described, right? Because he's a hater, right? So I could pull out in exactly 14 seconds of Google searches, uh, speeches that are given in Britain by imams that are all sorts of exhortations to genocidal hate. But, you know, that's religion. So, you know, he's just, he's just, he's, he's maybe misunderstanding his beautiful, poetic, religious edicts. But if Robert Spencer points to those edicts, then he is a neo-Nazi hater. So let me ask you about Hillary Clinton. I mean, why do you think, I mean, again, I'm asking you to speculate here, but is it that, I mean, she's so embedded in terms of the financial reward system that all of those countries provide her that she has to say this, but otherwise she is aware that it is dangerous? Or is she in in line with, I mean, what could explain somebody? I mean, obviously she is equipped with a functioning brain. She, she, you'd like to think she's able to think. So why would she take the positions that she does? What could explain that? Well, I I think, you know, there's, there's three explanations. One of them is the financial entanglement that you mentioned, which is very lucrative for her. The other is, or two others are the ones we've talked about before. She's politically cynical. So uh, blaming things other than Islamic doctrine for Islamic terrorism uh, is something that stirs up her base. It's popular with the media, so it's helpful to her politically. And I also think she's a dreamy progressive in a lot of ways. And she actually believes that, um, you know, she may understand that a lot of this religion of peace hype is, is just a bunch of nonsense. Um, but, you know, she may be one of these people who believes the long arc, arc of history is bending in our direction and that the more responsibility for governance we give folks like the Muslim Brotherhood, the more they'll become regular political actors. Now, that's, as we said before, uh, that's a theory that is and will forever be in search of any evidence to corroborate it because the, the history of mankind uh, is a history of when you give authoritarians um, more power, they become more authoritarian. They don't evolve into uh, James Madison. But that doesn't mean these folks won't uh, do, you know, keep hoping that it's true. You mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood, so I, th- so I thought we'd cover two more topics. 
And as I always tell all my guests, because they're all fascinating, I could keep you here for another five hours, but I'm sure you're busy. Uh, so let's talk about the Muslim Brotherhood and how much uh, successful uh, encroachment they've done in all walks of life in the, in the American context. Uh, as we know, uh, Hillary Clinton's right-hand person, uh, Huma Abedin, her mother was a you know very serious member of the Muslim Sisterhood, I believe. Uh, of course, you have CARE, which uh, is sort of have, has become the official spokespeople of all things Islamic, uh, and they're a profoundly sinister group of guys. They just came out with a satirical uh, uh, campaign. I don't know if you saw it called Islamophobin. Have you heard of yes. that? And yes, I did. You basically take a pill and it washes away the Islamophobia, and then I satirized that. And I said, if I take that pill, will it also cure uh, Jew uh, hatred? Will it cure homophobia? Will it cure all sorts of other genocidal hatred if I take the same pill? So, again, how can we explain the success of the Muslim Brotherhood and groups that are affiliated with them in the context of the United States? What could explain such lunacy? I think um, the... The unprecedented thing in history, uh, and this goes back to the 60s and 70s, is this toxic combination of Muslim Brotherhood ideology and know-how. Because in this region of the world, um, say what you will about the Brotherhood, but they were sophisticated, urbane Islamists. Tariq Ramadan is the king of those guys, right? Yeah, I, mean, he, I think, uh, absolutely. He, he's handsome, he speaks beautifully, he's tall, he's suave, he looks like a movie actor, he's the man. Yeah, and, and he's, been a, he's been a model that the care guys, I think, have, have emulated. But the, the toxic combination is that sophistication and know-how and dedication that these guys had and Saudi combination of money and complete lack of, of, of know-how and everything the Brotherhood was good at, right? So when the Nasserites chase the uh, Brotherhood out of Egypt, or at least force the Brotherhood to go underground when they're having the, uh, you know, when they attempt to kill Nasser and they end up killing uh, Bana in, in the, you know, the back and forth, Kudub comes back to, Egypt, but the Brotherhood is mainly an underground organization for a while. The soft place a lot of them found to land was Saudi Arabia. And I think what you have is this unprecedented combination of ideology and wealth, which enabled the Brotherhood, uh, with the Saudis backing and agreement, to make a project out of propagating their belief system globally. Um, and putting the best spin on it that could, could possibly be put. Uh, and at the same time, especially after terrorism attacks, and particularly after 9-11, but even before 9-11, um, the West, perceiving that it didn't have and needed allies in the Muslim community to project that it was not at war with all of Islam, just against terrorists, reached out to the lowest hanging fruit instead of the best thing they could have reached out to. They reached out to the Islamist organizations, which were the best known and the best financed, but unfortunately are rapidly anti-Western and anti-America. And they decided to make common cause with those organizations 
because it had the immediacy of an appearance of alliance between Western governments and Islamic, you know, very much self-defined Islamic organizations. And the tragedy here is not just that we allowed uh, anti-Western, anti-American people to uh, infiltrate the chancelleries and the, and the agencies of the West. The, the real tragedy is that if you really wanted to cultivate ties with, with Muslim people and you really wanted to empower likely Islamic allies, what we should have done, it would have required more work, but it would have been much more fruitful in the end, was to reach out to Islamic reformers. Because by doing that, you could have marginalized the really hateful, noxious, anti-constitutional ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood. Instead, what they decided to do was make their bed with these Muslim Brotherhood organizations, and the price of doing that was to, as extensively and energetically as they could, suppress any examination of what these guys actually believe. And, and what their Sharia system is. Now, you said Islamic reformers, uh, which leads me... So I, I had two more topics I want to cover with you. Uh, one was Islamic reformation, and if it's possible, the other one was immigration. So do you think, uh, based on your expertise, that it is actually possible to, in a doctrinal sense, reform Islam? Uh I, 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 let me Let me attack the premise of the question a little bit, because... Can you change doctrine? Literally, no, I guess. Because it's um, the final inerrant word of God, nothing could be changed and so on, right? Yes, but at the same time, I've never been one who believed that um, a religion is defined solely by doctrine. I, I think there are cultural factors that um, both work with doctrine and cabin doctrine and, and act as a way that kind of harnesses the bad parts of doctrine. And... To be more clear about that, if you look at the way Islam is understood and practiced in, say, uh, most of Malaysia or Indonesia, it's a different practice than it is in Azerbaijan, and it's a much different practice than it is, say, in Pakistan or Egypt. And I think that testifies to the fact that cultural factors do make a, a difference in how doctrine is understood and practiced, even if they don't make any difference in terms of what doctrine actually says. And this is why you have such uh, uh, diversity in uh, Islam to the point, I think, where it's impossible to say that anything is the authoritative, true Islam, because the, the, the different interpretations are so varying um, and internally contradictory. It's, it's absolutely possible to say, this is what the doctrine literally says. Um, but it's not possible to identify any consensus about what it means across the board. And in, I, I, I say this as a, a Catholic. I'm, I'm not a theologian, but I was raised as a Catholic. Um, whether you're a fan of the Pope or not, you know, whoever the Pope happens to be at any one time, the hierarchy of the church is such that the Pope is the authority, and when he speaks ex cathedra, um, that ends discussion about what is, uh, what is doctrine and what isn't, what, what is the authoritative meaning and what isn't. Islam doesn't really have anything 
like that. I mean, they have Al Azar, and it's very influential, uh, but it's not taken as the final word by anything close to all Muslims across the board. So you don't have this, this discipline um, at the top that's able to say, this is uh, heterodoxy and you know, th- this is what's outside our, our system. You know, Majid Nawaz, the Islamic reformer out of Britain, uses exactly your argument to try to sort of infuse some optimism as to the possibility of reform, precisely because he uses the argument that since there isn't a clear hierarchy as to who authenticates anything, as would be the case in the Catholic Church, well, hey, it's open to interpretation. Uh, Taken to another extreme, Reza Aslan, the king of apologists, uh, will also use a, a trick of postmodernism whereby he says, well, when we read text, I mean, who are we to uh, know what is the meaning? Meaning is, is relative. We could all instill our, instill our own unique interpretations. Uh, that's all nice, but again, I, I'll probably get this metaphor wrong, but to me, all of this is re, uh, what is it, re-fixing re, re, uh, the, the chairs on the sinking Titanic? <laughs> right, right, the rearrangement. Re- well, let's, I, I think we need to be clear um, and this is something that people don't want to grapple with. Even even people who who have a, a, a darkly benign uh, sense of the situation, like I do, and you know, say people like Ayan Hirsi Ali, who up until her last book, I think, was uh, completely pessimistic about the idea of Islamic reform. Her last book, very interestingly, opens the the door to the a crack. To the possibility of reform, but but it, it, she's pretty honest, I think, about how hard and, and difficult uh, it is. Um, so I, I think that the one thing that we have to grapple with, if you're going to be honest about this, is you can say that these cultural factors are strong enough that they can modify the doctrine, and maybe over a long period of time, eventually um, marginalize the the particularly bellicose parts of, of uh, the Quran and the, and the Hadith that are so problematic. But the, the fact in front of our face, and all you have to do is look at Europe to see this, is that the more Islamic an enclave becomes, the more, at least at this time, the more literalist and authoritarian it, it becomes, the more its interpretation of Sharia is the classical literalist interpretation. So we, we can hope, as we are hoping, for evolution, but we also can't ignore the fact of the evidence in front of our eyes, which is that when, when Muslim populations swell in, in Western areas where, where they didn't particularly exist, the bigger they get, the less they evolve. They actually go in the other direction, and that's not a hopeful sign. Which, which leads us to the last topic of our chat for today, and that is the uh, rather open immigration policy that the West has been uh, indulging us with in terms of uh, immigrants coming from Islamic countries. In Canada, while we are not anywhere near what uh, uh, Merkel is doing in Germany and other countries like in Sweden and so on, uh, our new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is trying to uh, compete with the ostriches of Europe by letting in tons of people who typically it takes 12 to 18 months to uh, vet uh, one person. But by some magic uh, pr- pr- process now, 
we can vet 25, 50,000 people, but don't worry, they were at a United Nations camp, so they're all very nice, they're all lovely people, and so on. Now, the reality is that most are lovely people, but also we know, as I repeatedly state, that it, you don't have to worry only about how many of the 25 or 50,000 people are jihadists and ISIS members. You, all, you have, with the bigger threat, uh, in, in terms of a long view of our society, is how many people are you importing that share your values? Out of the 25,000 Syrians, how many are rabid Jew haters? That number is astonishingly high. How many of them believe that men and women are equal? How many of them believe that homosexuals should be allowed to uh, coexist without being harmed? Uh, so the question is, how do we, and I, I ask this of all my guests, and I don't think any of us have ever been able to really come up with an answer, but I'll ask it to you. How do we navigate through, on the one hand, wanting to be decent, tolerant people, helpful people, altruistic people who true, genuinely want to help others who are escaping from hell holes that just want to come here and be peaceful and raise their children, but also recognize that out of 25,000 Syrians, maybe 90% uh, don't mind rabid Jew hatred. How do we navigate through all this, uh, given the realities that we're facing with immigration? Well, I actually do have an answer to this, and I, right. I, uh, I, I don't know that it's uh, something that we can practically implement, but I think it's the only way that you can do this. Um, I've actually spent some time um, studying this uh, from a legal perspective, uh, because I I guess, number one, because I'm a lawyer, but also because the law, the, the, the legal limitations that you have um, affect what's possible to do, which is not always the same thing as what's right to do, right? So our legal infrastructure for dealing with excluding people for ideological reasons as opposed to subversive activity is a product not of the threat of radical Islam, but rather a product of the threat, in, in the United States at least, of Soviet communism. And we actually did ideologically exclude people for a very long time during the Cold War. Now, beginning in around the 1960s and 70s and going forward right up until shortly before the World Trade Center was bombed, the political left in America, which always thought that the restrictions on communism were both unnecessary because they didn't think there was any real threat of a violent overthrow of the United States, and also because they saw these restrictions as nativist and identified with their political opposition, did the best they could to eradicate the underpinnings of them. So the courts, for example, started to draw a ridiculous distinction between incitement to violence and mere advocacy of the overthrow of the, of the government um, in a way that was designed to expand First Amendment protection to insurrectionist speech. And at the same time, Democrats in Congress, led by people like George McGovern, and later Daniel Patrick Moynihan and, and Barney Frank, changed our immigration law in a way that, gave, that effectively gave immigrants or aliens outside the United States First Amendment protection. 
Now, they didn't give it to them directly, but the loopy theory that they operated under, which, which actually came from the courts, was to say that you couldn't keep out an alien like, say, the, the blind sheikh um, because the, it wasn't that he had First Amendment rights as an Egyptian outside the United States, but it was that academics in the United States had a First Amendment right to hear what he had to say and to hear his dissent and to associate with him as if the only way that you could, you could uh, it, you know, it, if in a country of 320 million people we actually needed to have aliens um, physically present in the United States in order to hear some novel angle of dissent that we otherwise would not be able to get and we couldn't get having a conversation like you and I are having over the internet, right? We got to have the guy <laughs> here. So what they did was they undermined our ability beginning in the, in the 60s and, and particularly in the 90s to keep people out of the United States solely on ideological grounds. So right now, the way our law is oriented, if you can't show that somebody was involved in terrorism or involved in subversive activity, not ideology, um, or that he was involved in, say, terrorist training, that he went to an al-Qaeda camp, you can't keep him out just because he shares the ideology of the terrorists. Now, I would debate uh, how effective those assumptions were with respect to Soviet communism, because I think a lot of these laws that got written, once the Soviet Union crumbled and we got all the revelations about how deep the infiltration actually was, uh, it, it, what it really showed was that these people on the left who said the threat was overblown were, were kidding themselves. They, it, it hardly was. But however that debate would come out, um, these laws are antiquated and in, in many ways, the, the underlying assumptions about them are totally wrong when you compare it to the current threat, which is Islamic radicalism, um, for two reasons. Number one, unlike the Soviets, we have repeated mass murder attacks on Americans and the West. So it's not a debate about whether the threat is overblown. The threat is very real. They've killed thousands of people and, and left to their own devices, they'll, they'll kill thousands more. Secondly, and this is the most important point, it goes to the, to the point that you make. If you look at what's happening in Europe, what you see is that jihadist terrorism cannot work, does not thrive, unless it has safe zones, enclaves that are ideologically supportive of the ends of the terrorists, even if the people themselves are not willing to participate in the violence. They... They, um, this is a, an ideology. The Islamists who are nonviolent um, have the same goals as the Islamists who are violent. It's just a question of, of, of methodology of getting there. And so what do you end up finding in Europe? You got a guy who participates in the Paris mass murder attacks of last December. He's subjected to a transcontinental manhunt, which is supposed to be... Uh, you know, energetic and a big dragnet and all that stuff. And what happens? Four or five months later, he gets captured about 30 paces from his own house. And it turns out that he's been able to flit around from place to place. Why? Because everybody's a terrorist? No. Because these different enclaves, even though only a, a tiny percentage of people may be jihadists, are supportive 
to some degree or another of the terrorist ends, even if they don't support the terrorist methods. And the people who aren't supportive are too, too, too intimidated to speak. So now the problem we have with immigration is, you know, the one that we talk about all the time is not the main problem. The one we talk about is if you let too many of these people in when we can't vet them, we're going to let terrorists, you know, trained terrorists into our country. I'm not minimizing that problem. It's a, it's a significant one. But a more significant one, as we're seeing in Europe, is the more uncontrolled mass immigration that you allow to happen with a population that you can't assimilate. What ends up happening is this voluntary apartheid. They come in, they go to enclaves, these enclaves swell, they become uh, basically Sharia compliant, they become safe areas for jihadists to operate, and it's not just the jihadists who come into the country, it's the young Muslim kid who's 11 or 12 years old who grows up in this environment and is a primo target for radicalization. We proved in my trial that exactly what Bana, uh, the, the founder of the Brotherhood, drew up on the drawing board is what they do. In these radical communities, the mosque and the Islamic Community Center become, as they put it, the axis of the movement. The Muslim student associations at universities. Right. Exactly. That's, that's the, that's the uh, satellite on the campus. But in the community, you know, all of the terrorism that got plotted in our case other than in the safe house where they're actually building bombs, the transfer of weapons, the storage of weapons, the conspiratorial conversations, the recruitment for terrorism, the, the arrangement for training for paramilitary competence, all of that happened in the mosque in the community center. And I'm not, this isn't speculation. We proved it in court. Now, so if I can maybe paraphrase or synthesize what you just said, I seem to be hearing you saying that we might be heading down uh, the path of uh, uh, arguing that an ideology could be seditious. And then in that case, the question then becomes, what do we call that ideology? Is it Islam or is it Islamism? And are they different? I mean, is that what we're arguing here, that there are inherently elements of the tenets of Islam that are antithetical to Western secular liberal values? And if you proclaim allegiance to those tenets, then you are, by definition, being seditious, and I could keep you out on the premise of your ideological bent. Is that, did I summarize your position correctly? Well, you did, but let me, let me put a couple of refinements in it. Um, I think that this discussion about Islam versus Islamism is a vital one to have if it was a, an honest academic debate. From my neck of the woods, which is more national security policy for the government as opposed to uh, you know, the eternal pursuit of truth for, in the academy. Um, I think that it's been a terrible waste of time, energy, and, and uh, propaganda opportunity to have this uh, pointless, endless debate within American national security circles about what the true Islam is, or, or to my mind, whether there even is one. From a national security perspective, the only thing that's important is that Islamic supremacism, Islamism, political Islam, radical Islam, whatever we're calling it today, right? Um, it doesn't matter whether it's true Islam or not. What matters 
is that it's mainstream enough that tens of millions of Muslims believe it. And they are Muslims. They're devout Muslims, uh, whether we like to admit that or not. And whether what they believe is true or not true, um, we still have to protect the country because they're going to act on what, on, on what they believe. And the other reason this is such a waste of time is that because the people we're trying to persuade regard America and the West as the enemy, even if we came up with some brilliant argument about why their Islam is false, they wouldn't believe it anyway. In fact, they, they'd be inclined to go the other way. The way I usually discuss this with, with people just to, at, at you know, big uh, gatherings to try to point out how crazy our national security has been all this year, is, all these years, uh, is to point out that uh, Sheikh Yusuf Karadawi of the Brotherhood, oh, yes. who is about as influential uh, a, an Islamic, I don't like to call them clerics. Not, not a true I, Muslim, not a true Muslim. Yeah, yeah, right. So, but I don't like to call them clerics. I think they should be called jurists because to my mind, the dividing line should not be terrorism. It should be for moderate, not moderate. Is, it's Sharia, not, not terrorism. Um, but Sheikh Karadawi is about as influential as it gets, right? The big, uh, uh, what is it, Sharia and Life TV show, the Islam 60 on million Mars. people, Al-Azhar University. I mean, you could not get a more credentialized, authentic guy than this guy. Okay, so let's stipulate he's about as influential as it gets. Does anyone in America, now he, he talks a lot about Christianity, he talks about Judaism, um, he talks about uh, Western mores. Does anybody in America do or not do something on the basis of what Sheikh Karadawi thinks or how Sheikh Karadawi might react or what he might say about you know, our decision to have this law or to believe this thing? Most people don't even know who the hell Sheikh Karadawi is. And you know, once they find out about him, um, they, they kind of think he's uh, – you know, if a guy is authorizing uh, by fatwa suicide bombings, he's probably not a way that I, you know, a barometer for my particular behavior. But they couldn't care less what Sheikh Karadawi thinks. Um, it's obvious, right? It's common sense. Our national security problem or, or policy for the last quarter century has operated on the premise that the people we're trying to convince care what we think. And I'm here to tell you they couldn't care less. And I'm, I'm saying that not only because it's common sense, but because I've talked to them. And, you know, what they'll tell you is they either don't know what we think or the fact that we say it induces them to go in the opposite direction. But in one way or the other, we've had no influence on here on this. So for 25 years, rather than strike the right balance uh, in terms of ideology to try to figure out who the authentic moderates are versus who are the faux moderates and the Islamists. What we've spent our energy on is trying to come up with our own, um, I always call it an Islam of our very own, our own fantasy version of Islam that is the true Islam that makes all the other Islams the false Islam in, in this diluted idea that we'll be able to influence the outcome when 
what's going on between the reformers and the Islamists um, is going to have to be worked out by them. The best thing we could do is get behind the reformers and help them in every way that it makes sense to help them. But to think that, you know, this idea that if we call a terrorist attack workplace violence, yes. that that's going to influence, you know, the people that we're trying to influence to not be to not be terrorists. And or, don't, call, don't call them ISIS, they're Daesh. Right, right, right. Exactly that, right. I mean, it's, right. it's all about name calling. These guys will shake in their boots if you call them by the right name or wrong name. Yep, yeah. yeah. See, this is the thing, and it, it, it's, again, our projection of our values onto their system. In the West, it's absolutely true for the left that winning the, the, the language battle is the key to everything. So that, for example, the, the minute um, social conservatives thought that they had to modify the word marriage, that it was no longer necessary, to, it was no longer uh, uh, sufficient to just say marriage, you now had to say hetero marriage and, and oppose it. The, the minute they felt they had to do that, they had lost. It was just at that point, it was a matter of time because by, by taking that literal position, you legitimize the, the basic assumption of the other side, which is that, you know, marriage is, is, uh, there's all different kinds and it's a, uh, it's a diverse institution and it's not what the social conservatives say it is. So the language game works in the West on other Westerners, well, but it I, doesn't work with Islamists. I mean, it's moronic to think that uh, the way we talk about them is going to affect the way that they perceive themselves. And, and I will hypothesize that one of the reasons why language takes on the importance that you're mentioning is because a lot of the intelligentsia, certainly in academia, uh, come from uh, sort of a postmodernist bent. And one of the subfields of postmodernism is deconstructionism. Yes, right. And deconstructionism is the idea that language creates reality. And right. therefore, that's exactly what you're saying. Uh, right. We're unfortunately come to uh, the point where we need to wrap up. I like to always ask my guests, are there any things that you're currently working on, projects uh, or books or anything that you'd like to promote that the public might otherwise not be aware of at this point? Well, I, I appreciate the question. Uh, my writings are, um, I, I guess, uh, probably the best place is uh, my website, which is andrewcmccarthy.com. Uh, there's archives of my stuff at uh, Encounter Books, which publishes my books, uh, National Review, uh, where I write most regularly, and, and uh, PJ Media as well. I don't have a, uh, I, I have a few ideas tumbling around, but I don't have a, a project to talk about at the moment. Got you. It has been an absolute pleasure. Stay on the line. I'm just going to turn off the recording. Uh, thank you so much. Check out this gentleman's work. Very, very interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Andy. I appreciate it. Cheers.